siblings and coworkers, parents and supervisors. We all have people in our lives with whom it can be hard to get along. And even a good relationship has its rough spots. Join us as we take a kingdom approach to relationships. Heart Smart, a practical guide to relating like Jesus. Hey, thanks to Brianna doing a great job last week. Isn't she a gift? She just nailed it with forgiveness and all that. Oh, what a gnarly girl. Just a gnarly lady. Just, just, uh, we, we've been blessed uh, in the last couple of years just with uh, young people, young couples coming and, and just bringing an assortment of gifts and a youthful perspective. And I just thank God for that. Keep praying for that because that's the next generation of Woodland Hills. And God's raising it up and, and I, I, I just love it. I was last week at, uh, teaching at a conference and really had a blessed time doing that, but it's always good to come back home. So we're in this uh, series on relationships, and today we're going to talk about dealing with difficult people. Difficult people. Um, so we're going to call this uh, Tough to Love. Actually, it's about tough love for the tough to love, but that's a little too long, so we'll just go with tough love, and it kind of captures both segments of that. Um, and it's a, it's a topic that is, I think, extremely important for a number of reasons, one of which is that we all have to deal with that. We all have difficult people in our life. Of course, we're not the difficult people. We have difficult people in our life. Even that way of phrasing it assumes that we're the healthy, easy people. They're the difficult people. But those people out there, we've got to deal with them, right? Uh, or maybe it's the person sitting right next to you. Who knows? Uh, but um, uh, it, it, we all, this is something we all got to deal with. It's also, here's the thing. This is where the rubber hits the road in terms of the kingdom. There's nothing distinctly kingdom about relating to people who are easy to relate to, your friends, people you're compatible with. Everyone does that. But when we have to deal with really difficult people, the people who drive us crazy, because buggy, the boss who's autocratic, the spouse who's inconsiderate, uh, the kids who never call, or uh, when they do call us to complain, or the neighbor who's just weird and uh, bizarre in different ways. When we have to deal with folks like that, or even especially people who have it in for you, enemies, um, here, here we see the degree to which our life is or is not kingdomized. The degree to which the character of Jesus has been infused into us and that we're living that out. And so in some ways, this is kind of a benchmark sort of a message. What makes it a little bit challenging is that there's so many different kinds of difficult people that we've got to deal with. Everyone from like the stranger that you just, you know, get into an argument with on the bus to uh, the occasional person you run into, the customer that's grouchy, whatever. To uh, then we have siblings that we have to deal with and we've maybe uh, the spouses or the other relatives or you know, the bosses or whatever, there's, there's an assortment of different types of difficult people. Um, and everyone, every situation is going to be a little bit different. And so I can't possibly do a teaching on rules that will apply to all these different kinds of situations. What I want to do, rather, is to uh, just lay out, I want to focus on the difficult folks that we have to deal with. Not the ones that we just easily walk away from because we'll never see them again. But the folks that are in our life and we kind of got to put up with this. And I want to just talk about principles, three biblical principles that I think cover all of these. And we're going to see here that, and this is why these difficult folks can, can squeeze the, the kingdom, uh, can manifest whether or not we're kingdomized, is because the way that we're called to respond to difficult people in difficult situations, we're going to see it's absolutely antithetical, the opposite of the way the world typically does, and the way our old fallen nature wants to respond. Here, we, here, here the kingdom rubber hits the road. Um, but as we start, I want to start with do, doing this. I want you right now to imagine one person in your life 
that you find difficult to deal with, maybe the most difficult person in your life. Just get a picture of them in your mind. Imagine them. Holy Spirit, bring them our, our attention, our imagination, the, the, the person that you want us to be thinking about. Hold them in, 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 in your mind. And if you're a committed follower of Jesus, I would like you to pray this prayer as you're thinking about that person. Pray this prayer. Um, usually when we do corporate prayer, we do we's. But this is now about you. And this is your prayer. And so we are all individually going to commit to this. So this is on your heart. Uh, pray it with me uh, simultaneously out loud. Jesus, I surrender my will over to you. I commit to relating to this person the way you want me to. I confess I can't do this on my own. So as I learn about how you want me to relate to this person today, will you empower me by the Spirit who lives in me to remember what I learned and to apply this to my relationship to this person? Amen. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you just solidify that prayer in our hearts, everyone in this auditorium and all listening through podcasts and other means. Uh, Lord, solidify this. Help us to hold that person in mind as we're now hearing your word. Uh, and build a kingdom in us that we can demonstrate to this person the reality of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, three principles. The first one you hear me talk about all the time, because it's foundational to absolutely everything, and it's simply get your life from Christ. By life, you know, if you've been around here for any length of time, life is about uh, your core need for worth and significance and love and security. Everybody, the core of their being, needs that. And that's what I call life. When we have that, we have a sense of fullness of life. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. This is what it is to be fully alive. We feel fully alive when that core need for those things is met. But only God can meet that need. And in God's design, He created us with His vacuum because He wants to pour His life into us, His fullness of life, and then cause us to then live our life by overflowing towards others. Okay, this is, we're a receptacle and then we're, we're a conduit. And so His life is, is, it flows in us and then flows out of us. And that always looks like Abba Father's character, which always looks like Jesus Christ as he's revealed God's love on the cross. It always looks like self-sacrificial love. It always looks like ascribing worth to others at cost to yourself when necessary. That's God's design. But if a person isn't getting their fullness of life from the relationship with God, and most people, the vast, vast, vast majority of people uh, in, in the world don't, well, then you live life being hungry for those things, and, and it becomes ultimately, though very few people are aware of this, this is the ultimate driver. This is the motivator. Uh, we take that hunger with us, whatever we do, and to some degree, what we do is done to try to meet that core need for significance and worth and love and security. And so people take this to their relationships. And to some degree, all relationships are there to be feeders, uh, to feed this need that we have. And so when uh, a person's in a difficult relationship, in terms of you know, the world, if they're not getting their fullness from Christ, well, then it's all about them. Uh, it's, it's, I deserve better. I have my rights. I have the right to be spoken to differently. I have the right to be treated differently. It's about me, 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 and my rights. Because they got into the relationship in part for self-centered reasons. And so when there's a difficulty, well, it gets framed in terms of self-centeredness. It's about what I'm not getting out of this relationship. Uh, in the kingdom, we're, we would have a totally different frame. Because out of the fullness that we receive from, from, from God, uh, this fullness of life, we're to, to go into relationships not to get life, but to express the life we've already got. 
It's about an overflow kind of a thing, and that always looks like Calvary-like love. Uh, We're not trying to get full, we're trying to express fullness. And so the most fundamental question to ask yourself, as you're holding that difficult person in mind, the most fundamental question is to ask, am I in fact getting all of my life and worth and significance and love and security from Jesus Christ? Or is there any part of you that was trying to get it from this relationship, from this difficult person? Are you framing this in terms of what you're not getting, or, or are you framing it in terms of manifesting the, the life of Christ? Because here's the thing. That difficult person you're holding in mind, from a kingdom perspective, the most fundamental question to ask is not, what are they doing that's upsetting you, or, or what needs of yours aren't being met? The most fundamental question is to ask, what does it look like for me to manifest God's fullness of life to this person? And that's something we're to be doing all the time to every person. I don't care how nasty and mean and slimy and self-centered and jerk-butted they are. It's about how can we manifest the life of Christ. That's the most fundamental question that we're to live in. That's why Paul says this in Ephesians 5. He says, live in love as Christ loved us and gave his life for us. We're to live in that. Uh, it doesn't matter what our environment is. It doesn't matter who's around us. It doesn't matter whether they're nice or whether they're absolutely mean. We're to live in this kind of love. And love always looks like Jesus Christ dying on the cross, giving his life for others. Jesus said it in an even more pointed way in Matthew 5. He says, love your enemies. You talk about difficult people. Well, to even love your enemies. And when he says enemies to his Jewish audience, the first things they think of are the Romans who are the terrorists who have already conquered. So these are the real enemies. He says, love your enemies, those difficult people, and pray for those difficult people. Even when they persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. This is how we reflect, how we respond to the difficult people, and especially to enemies. That reflects the degree to which we've got Abba's DNA in us. You know you're children of the Father in heaven when you respond to the difficult people in a way that's absolutely opposite the way the the, 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 the world outside of Christ would, the way your old nature would. God causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. Love like that, because that's how the Father loves. Uh, The rain doesn't choose who it falls on, and the sun doesn't choose who it shines on. It just does what it does. So also, children of the Father are supposed to just do what what, what we do. And when we're getting our fullness of life and love and significance and worth and security from our relationship with God, what we do is overflow. It's a unilateral sort of thing. It doesn't pick and choose. And so the most fundamental question to ask again is this. Are we getting our fullness of life and love and significance and security and worth from, from Jesus Christ? Uh, otherwise, the whole thing's going to be framed wrongly. Now, when we're relating to the difficult person in a kingdom way, part of what it looks like to manifest God's life to them, and this, this, require, this is not what our old nature wants to hear. This is the opposite of what our old nature wants to hear. But it means we first put their, their well-being above our own. If you're not getting your fullness from God, you always put your well-being in front of others because you're trying to get that need met. But in the kingdom, we're to enter into all relationships having got that need met, and so we're to put their well-being, their interests above our own. You find this all over the place in the New Testament. Paul says this in Philippians 2. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Everyone say nothing. Nothing. Everyone say selfish ambition. ambition. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Trying to, it's about me, me, my rights. Or vain conceit, rather in humility, because this requires humbling ourselves, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ. And then he tells us what that mindset is. 
In the next five verses, he says, Jesus, oh, he was in the form of God. He has had God's status, had all those privileges. Yet, he surrendered them all, set them all aside, became a human being, and died on a cross. That's the mindset of Jesus Christ we're to always have. That's the mindset we're supposed to live in, even when we're talking about enemies. And now you talk about enemies, Jesus did this for us, Paul tells us, while we were yet enemies, we were estranged from God. And so he didn't do it for people who deserved it, he did it for the people. In fact, he did it for the people who crucified him, which ultimately is all of us. This is how Jesus responds to difficult people, and this is how we're to respond to difficult people. Put their well-being above your own. So imagine the person that you did at the beginning, and ask the question, what, what would, how could I relate to them in a way that benefits them, their well-being? Uh, how, how do I help them? And see, just framing things this way can often take a lot of the difficulty out of the relationship. Um, if you're ascribing worth to the person and you're putting their interest above your own, it just reframes them. Here's the thing. When we identify someone as a difficult person, that's the category through which we see them. Our brains are always filters. I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. And so, you know, we have a map and there's a territory, but our map will highlight some things and minimize others and will notice some things and not notice others. We all select like that. And we select according to certain categories that we've adopted. And so if, if you've identified this person as the difficult person in your life, well, that's the lens through which you're going to look at them. And guess what's going to get magnified? All the things that drive you crazy. There's an amplification of those things. And so we're actually harming ourselves by putting them in that category because that makes them irritate us all the more. That's what we just notice. But if you commit to ascribing unsurpassable worth to this person at cost to yourself... And framing them, and always remembering that their worth was decided by Calvary, that they were worth God dying for, and you look at them through those eyes, guess what? You start to notice other things. You don't just notice the things that drive you crazy. You notice worthwhile things. You begin to see something of God's perspective. This person has worth. And so that puts the difficult areas, their personality, whatever the issues are, in a broader context, which then, instead of amplifying them, minimizes them, and they just don't irritate you as much. Whether they change or not, your way of framing it takes some of the edge off. The other thing is if you're putting their their well-being above your own, well, that that causes you to kind of get in on their life a little bit. You you start to empathize with them. Uh, You maybe begin to understand why they are the way they are, and that brings forth compassion. And where there's compassion, well, it's just... It has a way of smoothing over the edge, edginess of some of the things that, that were irritating you. So just reframing things as, in a kingdom way often can really help a lot in dealing with this difficult person in your life. So the first principle, folks, is get your life from Christ. Everything I just said, we, we will never do, we can't do, it's impossible to do, to put a, the interests of a difficult person above your own. Uh, and to, uh, and to, to, to love them, ascribe worth to them regardless of what they do. It's impossible unless we are getting our fullness of life from Jesus Christ. So regularly be reminding yourself that your worth and everything else that you need is resolved on Calvary. And spend time letting Abba Father pour that love and that life into you. Just drink deeply from that, because that is the gasoline that the engine of the kingdom runs on. Uh, We can only be his kingdom as we are full of life from him. Okay, second principle is this. Examine yourself. Jesus said, uh, don't judge, otherwise you're going to be judged. And why do you look at that speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Um, he says, look at your own stuff. You see, think you see nasty stuff out there? That's mere sawdust. Be checking out the plank that's in your own eye. 
This also is the opposite of what our fallen nature wants to do and the way the world usually does it. When there's a difficult person in our life, our tendency is to blame them. Examine them. Take the tension off of us. It's their fault. Look at that mean, nasty, jerk-faced, butt-headed, slimy, obnoxious, know-it-all does. No wonder I'm getting mad. And, 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 and so there's this you know, judgment on them. It's a judgment. It's the, I'm the healthy, easy one. They're the difficult, uh, unhealthy one. We frame it like that. And that's a form of judgment, as I often say around here. Judgment is antithetical to love. Because love is about ascribing worth at cost to yourself, whereas judgment is about ascribing or detracting worth from another to the benefit of yourself. I'm not like that person. And so we contrast ourselves with this other person. Now, here's the thing. You may need to, at some point, confront that slimy, butt-headed, jerk-faced, know-it-allness. At some point, you might need to confront that for sure. But the first thing we have to do in the kingdom is to look at ourselves. What plank might we have? Before we start talking about their sawdust, what plank might be in our own life? Are we, ask questions like this, are we getting our life from Christ? Are we really doing that? Are we, are we loving like the rain falls and the sun shines? Are we putting their interests before our own? And then ask the question, are we in some ways contributing to the difficulty of this relationship? What might we be doing that is aggravating this? Explore this. Now, this brings us to one of the most fundamental ways that the biblical worldview contrasts with the Western worldview that all of us in this room probably have. Um, and it's, it's why some things in the Bible, just have, we have trouble making sense out of them. Here's the thing. And you'll see, this is why this, this point about examining ourselves is so important. We in the West have the most hyper-individualistic worldview ever in the history of the world. I'm not exaggerating. We see things in terms of individual units. We see individual people as real. But the relationship between the two people, well, that's not really a reality. That's just what these two real people do. So the relationship is kind of secondary to the individuals. All right, so the individual are real. The reality is simply kind of a verb that we do. We, we, We relate. But in a biblical worldview, the relationship has its own reality. Uh, when two people relate, there's, a real, there's, there's two real people, but then a third real thing is created. And it's the relationship of the two. The whole is more than the sum of the parts. Um, and so that, re, that relationship has a reality in and of itself. This is why in the Bible you'll find God treats couples and God treats families and God treats tribes and nations and even all of humanity on one level as, as being like a single person. There's a reality there. And to a certain degree, we stand or fall together. The relationship is not just a bunch of individuals ver- doing a verb. There's a new noun there, and the noun is the relationship. So Paul says things like, as all were in Adam, so all are in Christ. And to us, it's like, no, only individuals are in Adam, and individuals are in Christ. But what's this allness? Or we don't get when, when all of Israel is treated like, like one, one person, and everyone gets you know, sort of slammed because of what the king does and things like that. There's a holistic view of relationships in the Bible, and throughout most cultures throughout history, frankly, that we have trouble getting. And so it affects the way that we process having uh, 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 dealing with, 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 with uh, difficult people in our life. Uh, have you ever noticed this? And this is kind of proof of what I'm saying here. That one person can be very different depending on the relationships they're in. They can be this way in that one relationship and totally different in a different relationship. Maybe, maybe you've noticed that you're that way. So there's this guy, that, a couple that I knew in, in, in seminary, and um, 
Uh, here's the thing. This couple, they both were sweet, adorable, mature, godly people. They're fun to be around, just pleasant as can be. And they were that way with everybody, except for each other. Uh, when they related together, they were these sweet, adorable, mature, godly people turned into nasty, ugly, immature, ungodly people. And they were just nasty towards each other. So much so that, that if, if those who didn't have an inside peek on the relationship, um, when, when one of the spouses would tell somebody about their other spouse, it would be unbelievable. It's like, no, that's not John. I know John. John's this nice, sweet, adorable, mature, godly person. And the wife's saying, oh, no, he's mean and nasty and ungodly and immature. And it's like a, a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde sort of a thing. Now, how is that possible? Well, it's possible because relationships have a reality unto themselves. These two individuals, their relationship is more than just the coming together of the two individuals. It's the togetherness that's real. And that togetherness in this case was toxic. Was, was just toxic. Something about these people who would otherwise be nice and normal and mature and godly, the, the, the relationship, the third thing that they created lacked all of those qualities. There's a reality that to relationships in and of themselves. And here's why this is important then. Uh, the way we tend to frame difficult relationships is it's me relating to this difficult person. I am the easy, healthy one relating to this difficult, unhealthy one. And so there's this blame and separation that's going on. Whereas from a biblical perspective, we ought to say, not here's healthy me relating to this difficult person, but rather here's me and this person in a difficult relationship. In a difficult relationship. And see, framing it like that then makes, it, 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 it renders intelligible, makes sense of why we need to look at how we are contributing to this relationship. It may in fact be that the other person, their social issues or mental issues or chemical issues or who knows what their issues are, but it may be that that's the primary catalyst for the difficulty of the relationship, but it's never just about that one person. It's the togetherness of you two that is producing this difficulty. It could be the case that that person in a different relationship would be very, very different. And so that's what we need to look at ourselves saying, how are we contributing to this? So Imagine that difficult person in your life again. Again, God got him in mind. And now, here's the kind of questions we need to be asking ourselves. Does the way I speak, act, and respond to this person trigger them? Maybe this is a particular thing about you that just sets them off. They're not like that in other relationships, but around you they are. If so, how can I interact with them differently? Are there there different ways that you could speak and interact with them that maybe would diffuse the difficulty? It's not just about them. It's about us. Secondly, does the way I speak, act, and respond to this person communicate my agreement with God about their worth? Do I show them respect? Am I ascribing worth to them by how I interact with them? And see, this is something we really need to submit to God because usually we don't notice the things that we do that really detract from people's worth, the way we disrespect people. It could be the tone of your voice. It could be gestures. It could be the littlest thing. You're unaware of it, maybe even they're unaware of it, but see, that's what we bring into this relationship, and it creates some of the toxicity. So we need to introspect. Are there ways that I'm just not reflecting this? And then ask questions like this. Am I exemplifying the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, meekness, gentleness, and self-control in my interactions with this person. As you imagine that person in your life, does the fruit of the Spirit come out in your relationship with them? Um, Of course it's there when you're with friends, and ah, that's easy. But the challenge of the kingdom is, is are the fruit there uh, when you're with this particular person, in relation with this particular person? You can only do that if you're getting all of your life 
from Christ because the fruit of the Spirit is simply a manifestation of that life. That's what the life of God, the character of God, looks like when it's put on display. And so it needs to be put on display even in relationship to this, this uh, difficult person. So don't think in terms of uh, us relating to those difficult people. In fact, notice there's even a judgment about that. There's a judgment built into that. Even when I said, we all have to relate to difficult people. It presupposes that we're not the difficult people. Uh, but from their perspective, we are the difficult people. And so we've got to get rid of this us-them. It's just us in this difficult relationship. Examine yourself. Um, one of the best things to do here is simply ask the person. Humble yourself. And go to the person and say, and it, I, it varies depending on the situation, but ask the question, is there something I'm doing that, it seems like there's this tension between us, or there's warfare between us, or we want to kill each other, or we just sort of irritate each other, whatever. But is there, can you tell me what I'm doing that is contributing to that? Are, there, are the things that I say, or the way that I say them, that, that, that just set you off? And uh, let them be your counselor. And that takes humbling yourself. Uh, but... Um, that's the, that's the best source to check out because we're not usually good at self-monitoring ourselves. One other thing I'd say is this. Uh, when you are in a relationship with one other person and the relationship is difficult, because the relationship is a reality in and of itself, a third thing over and beyond just you and this person, you change the chemistry, the nature of that relationship by bringing other people into it. And maybe some of you have noticed this where the way you are around a person when it's just you and them changes when there's another person present. And maybe it changes depending on what person is present. But when you expand the relationship, you change the nature of it. And that, you might find, diffuses the difficulty. Um, you see something of this principle uh, in, in Jesus' teaching in Matthew 18 when he says, um, if you've got a, a problem with a person, an offense, something serious that has to be addressed, go to them one-on-one. Keep it as small as possible. Don't tell other people about it. Just go to them one-on-one. If that doesn't work, then bring two or three other people, and you're changing the chemistry here. It's not just that you have other eyes on this, but they're actually now going to create a, a new third thing. And if that doesn't work, well, then bring, in, bring still other people to be in on this. Uh, you're, you're changing the dynamics of this thing. So consider bringing other people in on this uh, to help resolve this conflict and maybe just to be part of this relationship. Okay, so examine ourselves. The third thing, then, is this. Set healthy boundaries. This is crucial because, as we all know, you can be full of life and, and, and manifesting the kingdom everywhere you go, and you can be examining yourself and doing all of that and doing everything possible to address this difficulty. But in this world, some difficult relationships are just not going to get undifficult. <laughs> some relationships just aren't fixable. Some people aren't fixable. Uh, things are going to be broken until the Lord comes back. So we have to ask, how do we deal with these with folks, uh, with relationships, with folks that just are going to be difficult. How, how do we do that? Boundaries are absolutely crucial. Now, here's the thing is that the way we frame boundaries should be very different from the way people in the world frame boundaries. Because in the world, you, frame, you have boundaries to protect you. Because it's always about you. You get into the relationship to get your needs met. Uh, and when there's difficulty, it gets framed as... Uh, your rights being violated, and so the boundaries there are to protect you, to protect your time, your energy, your whatever. It's a self-serving sort of thing. But in the kingdom, everything's different because we're not to be going into this for ourselves, and we're not to be setting boundaries for ourselves. Everything we do, everything we do, including the boundaries we set in place, ought to be done to manifest Abba Father's character, that fullness of life that flows out of us, which always looks like Calvary. That's got to be the motivation for everything we do, including setting boundaries. Um, it's a totally different way of framing this sort of thing. Uh, 
Some folks think that, that talk of boundaries is unchristian. I've heard Christians say, oh, that's because it doesn't look like Calvary, they think. But I submit to you that it does look like Calvary uh, if it's done with a Calvary sort of motivation. We put boundaries in place, not to protect our own little stuff, but we put it there for the good of the relationship. We put them there for the good of the person that we're relating to. And we put them there for the good of all of our other relationships. We've all got relationships, and they all have different you know, kind of levels of importance to us. But if we're walking in the Spirit, these are relationships that we're supposed to be involved in, so we have responsibility for those. And so we've got to balance. We only have so much time and energy to go around, so we have to balance how much time and energy we put in any relationship. So there needs to be boundaries, especially when you're in a difficult relationship. If I have to spend an inordinate amount of time on this difficult relationship, pouring a lot of time and a lot of emotional energy into it, well, that can't help but affect my relationship to my wife and my relationship to my kids and my relationship to intimate friends and my relationship to acquaintances and my relationship to co-workers and maybe even my relationship to Christ. Everything gets affected. So I need to wisely put boundaries in place so that I can be a good steward of my time and resources and energy and how I protect all my relationships. That's not self-centered. That's just being a good steward. And so it has to be there. The truth is this. All relationships have boundaries already. It's just that we don't talk about them. We don't usually even notice them until someone steps over the boundary. You know, you go along and all of a sudden someone does something or starts calling too often or whatever. And it's like, we just like feel weird. It's like, this is, something's going on here. And what's happening is that this implicit boundary is being stepped over, being violated. We've got these boundaries here. But we just don't acknowledge them. We're not usually even aware of them. They're just sort of... And see, this also can contribute to the difficulty of situations. Um, because we're not out loud about our expectations and boundaries of, of relationship, it can often happen that two people come together and one person's thinking, best friends for life. BFL, best friends for life. And this person's thinking, nice acquaintance now and then. And so guess what happens? Yeah, this person's going to be very quickly hurt and frustrated and angry, and this becomes a difficult relationship. Unfortunately, even then, we don't usually deal with it. It feels too awkward. We, we don't like make things explicit. We just sort of try to handle the, the difficulty. And these things can go on and on and on and suck life out of us because we just want to confront it, especially here in Minnesota. We do Minnesota nice, right? And it seems rude to say, you know what? You're not really that good of a friend to be calling me this much. It's awkward. And so we just sort of hint at it and do it in passive-aggressive ways. There's a lot of biblical wisdom, a lot of biblical wisdom, and the biblical idea of covenant. Uh, and everything in the Bible is all covenantal. This is the, the, the culture of, of, of Scripture. Um, a covenant simply makes explicit the expectations and the boundaries of a relationship. Here's what the relationship is, and here's what the relationship isn't. Everybody knows, and, and everybody agrees to the terms of the relationship, and everything's wonderful. And I encourage us to take some of that wisdom and apply it to some of our relationships. I'm not saying that we have to have a formal covenant with every person. You meet somebody, okay, here's the contract, we're just right here, and, and now let's get a cat and cut her in two, and we'll just walk between it. No, I, don't do that. But the wisdom of, of making some things explicit, especially if you sense that there's some kind of ambiguity. See, just, you just say, and because we don't do much of this in this culture, it can feel awkward at first, but it's like, I think we just need to get clear about about this relationship. Here's how I see it. Here's what it is, and here's what it's not. And so here's, I think, what's appropriate, and here's what's not. And the other person then might be offended or hurt or whatever because they had a different idea about it. But you either confront it now and get it done with, or you're going to be, it's going to be sucking life out of you and your other relationships uh, for however long you let it go. 
best to be out loud about things, be clear about things, speak the truth, speak it in love, have their well-being in mind. But you just say, this is, this is the relationship as I, I see it. And um, we need to have an agreed upon understanding about this so that we're not hurting each other, offending each other, and things like that. One final thing that we need to talk about, and this is the big one, uh, is this. Is it ever appropriate for kingdom people, Jesus followers, to put up the ultimate boundary, which is to say, I need a, a wall between you and me. Is it ever appropriate for kingdom people to, to end the relationship? And since relationships are realities in and of themselves, we're asking, is it ever appropriate for a kingdom person to kill that reality? Is that ever appropriate? And the answer to that, in my opinion, and therefore the correct answer to that is, <laughs> yes, yes, but. Yes, but, and it's a big but. So pay attention. Uh, here's the thing. In, uh, for folks who aren't getting their life from Christ, uh, their motive for all boundaries, including this ultimate boundary, their motive for ending relationships, is going to be uh, done for self-centered reasons. You get into relationships because you're trying to get a need met, and you get out of relationships because that need's not getting met. And so they, they, they'll, they'll, they'll do it because they need the space, they want to be protected, they're being inconvenienced, they have a right to be treated better, they, they, me, 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 me. In the kingdom, that is not to be our motivation ever. In the kingdom, it's not just the me, me, me thing. The, having our core needs met out of our relationship with Christ, everything we do should be a manifestation of Abba's character, including putting up the ultimate boundary, including terminating a relationship. It ought to be done with a view of the well-being of the other and the well-being of all your relationships. Um, and uh, uh, it's not to be done out of anger or just frustration or revenge or anything of the sort. In the world, relationships sometimes are used as weapons. And this is the most ungodly thing because relationships are the, the most beautiful thing that God gives us. They reflect the image of God, the image of the triune God. But they can become, because they're, they can do so much good, they can also be used for so much harm. And that happens when people actually turn these things into weapons. Uh, a person leverages the relationship to get control of other people. The threat that they're going to end it. Well, oh, everyone's got to just you know, tiptoe around them and do their way because otherwise they'll bolt. Uh, and then when they don't get their way, sometimes they just bolt in for, for sheer vengeance, a way of trying to stick it to people. I, I know a person, and this is a sad strategy that I've seen a number of people adopt, but they, they, uh, when they get mad enough, they just stop talking to the person, they're dead to them. And this person would say this, this guy that I knew. He had, when I knew him, he had for over 10 years not spoken to any person in his family. Um, his parents, his siblings, he had just cut them off. They were dead to him. Didn't go around Christmas, didn't anything. They were dead to him. In fact, most of the people that ever had any kind of relationship with this person at some point or other would be cut off. Uh, they'd be dead to him because he would get triggered, get angry or whatever, and he would punish them by ending the relationship. Not even explaining why. They were like, I don't know what happened, but he just won't talk. And even if they tried to talk with him, he wouldn't answer. He's like, what's why? Very, very sad thing, because people, when they would do this, I have no parents who do this with their kids. If they don't think their kids are raising their kids, their grandkids the right way, they stop talking to them. It's like, uh, that is, you're on a sad, sad road to be burying yourself in a coffin of isolation. These are the kind of people who later in life have no one in their life. Uh, they're all alone. And it's as ungodly as anything can be. In the kingdom, folks, that is never, ever appropriate. Ultimate boundaries are sometimes appropriate and necessary, but doing it for that motive, with that reason, and that, that style, that is never appropriate. Even the setting up of our, our, our 
ultimate boundaries ought to be done out of a fullness of life that comes from Christ. Now, here's, here's kind of what it may look like. I'll give you one example. A lady I knew a number of years ago, um, she had been married for 13 years. Okay, so we're going to talk about a marriage relationship, but it applies in other ways to other relationships. Married for 13 years to this guy who was mean, nasty, often drunk, uh, verbally and emotionally and a few times even physically abusive. Uh, and as inconsiderate as a guy could possibly be, just doing whatever he wanted to do and disappearing, uh, you know, sometimes for a day or two and not telling her where and coming home at any hour of the night, etc., etc., etc. There was no real relationship here. And, but she said that she was staying in it for righteousness' sake. Jesus said, suffer for righteousness' sake. And I've been taught that staying in a toxic marriage uh, and suffering is, is righteous. Now, here's what's crazy about that. The biblical concept of righteousness, it's a covenantal concept, because most concepts in the Bible are covenantal. And the core meaning of it is right-relatedness. We think of it as like just a personal holiness thing. No, it's about being rightly related. Right, rightly related to God and rightly related to others. That's righteous. Uh, this lady wasn't suffering for right-relatedness. She was suffering because of wrong-relatedness. And in fact... If she would examine herself, she's contributing to the wrong relatedness of this whole thing, the toxicity of this thing. What I explained to her was this. It is sometimes, in fact, frequently, we have to suffer some in relationships, uh, and that can be appropriate, although never appropriate to have physical uh, uh, abuse, but, but uh, to, to, be, to feel the pinch in some ways, uh, to suffer, if, that relation, if, if suffering in that way is moving the relationship further in right relatedness. If, it's, if, it's, if you're going in the right direction, then, and you have hope of at least having a relationship that approximates what a rightly related marriage would be, then it'd be appropriate to suffer. Hang in there. But if you see no hope of this ever becoming different, no hope of, of the relationship changing, it's not moving in the direction of right relatedness, well then you're just suffering because of the wrong relatedness. And not only that, but by not, by not pursuing this, by just staying in this thing, suffering and feeling righteous because of it, See, you're, it's not loving to the guy, it's not loving to you, it's not loving to your other relationships, it's not honoring God. Uh, the reality is that this thing isn't anything close to what, a, what God would see a marriage as being, and it's not even inching forward there. You're doing hopelessness here. You're just going to suffer this the rest of your life. What I explained to her was this. You need to, at this point, ask the question, what would God have you do in this thing? Now, if you've tried to, conf- you've confronted, you, first of all, you try to lo- love him out of this mean-spiritedness. That didn't work. Then you confronted the mean-spiritedness over and over again. That did not do anything. It seemed to deepen it. Uh, you bring others in on this uh, to confront this. Counselors in on this to confront this mean-spiritedness. That did not work. You've been praying for the person, but that hasn't seemed to make any difference. It's still not moving even in the right direction. What are you going to do? The only chip you have left is the relationship itself. And not out of bitterness or anger, because you deserve better. Though, of course, everyone would agree that you deserve better and all of that. But the ultimate motivation here should be for the well-being of this guy. By staying in this thing, you are helping to solidify him in this mean-spiritedness. Condoning, giving the impression that, that this is the appropriate way to, uh, to, to treat your spouse. You're harming your kid who's going to be seeing this going on. This is the pattern of, of marriage that they're going to grow up with. So you've got to ask the question. If you've tried everything else to bring about a change... The only thing you have left is relationship itself. And for the good of that person, for the good of all your relationships, for the good of your child, maybe God would say it's time to walk uh, out of love for this other person. 
uh, with the hope that this might be finally the thing that gets through to them and, and brings about a change in their life. You know, God does this throughout the Bible. Uh, he hates to do it, but he does. It's called the judgment of God, where God stays involved in, in uh, Israel's life or in individuals' lives uh, as much as he can, as long as he can, being merciful, protecting them from the consequences of their destructive decisions. But there can come a point where God says, I've got to turn you over to your own way. Uh, he does it with hope that they'll eventually learn uh, that it's in their best interest to be rightly related with him. But if they refuse to be rightly related, there comes a point where God says, well, I just have to, since we're not rightly related, I have to stop relating. And he withdraws. And so you find this refrain throughout the Bible, God hides his face. Um, or he, he, you know, withdraws. And that's when judgment comes on people because they suffer the consequences of their decisions. Romans 1, he turns people over to what's on their heart, what's in their minds. He grieves when he does this, but he does it with hope. So also we would grieve, but we do it with hope. And there are times where that is necessary. I, I always counsel people this way. If, if there is hope, any hope, and get other people to, to, to give your eyes on this, if there's hope that this could someday approximate, it's not going to be a perfect manifestation of what God would want a marriage to be, but if, it, if, it can, if you have hope of it moving forward in that direction, you have an obligation to stay in there and, and, and keep breathing into it and, and keep moving forward. Whatever boundaries you put up, uh, don't put up that ultimate boundary if there's hope of it changing. But when there is no hope, you don't have any hope, and others say, I don't think there's hope, doing all the things humanly possible to bring about a change and to move in the right direction, then, well, really, this lady isn't killing the relationship, this hopeless relationship. Uh, she's re- really just announcing that it's dead. If it ever was alive, it's dead now. Uh, and, and if you have someone who's dead and no hope of resuscitating them, you have to bury them. And so you're just saying out loud what is real. God always puts a premium on reality, not legality. The question is, are, is this really a marriage? Is it really moving in the direction that would at least approximate what a rightly related marriage would look like? And you're just announcing that this is dead. This is a, a dead thing. And you, if, you don't, if you don't, someone needs to hear this, if you don't bury corpses, they start spreading disease. And I've known people who have hung in hopeless situations. I think long after, God would have said, let go of that. But they, they for righteousness' sake, hung on to illegality. And it contaminates them. You hang on to something that's dead. It, it starts to affect your soul. It affects all your other relationships. It, start, it, can, it can be very, very destructive. And that is not what God wants. God hates divorce. There's some things he hates even more than divorce. Which is why you find two examples in the Bible where he actually commanded it. He hates divorce, but the harm being done in this pseudo-marriage is worse than the divorce. So yes, sometimes kingdom people need to put up uh, the ultimate boundary. But we don't, don't do it out of anger, out of revenge, anything like that. Get all your life from Christ. Manifest the life of Abba Father. And even setting up this boundary should be a manifestation of that life. For the good of the other person, the, in hope for the other person to change, uh, for the good of all those who are affected by this, for the good of all your relationships, um, it needs to be done. So, folks, get all your life from Christ. Be, be willing to examine yourself before you start just putting all the blame on the other person. Examine yourself. Realize it's not about you versus them. It's an us thing, and the whole thing needs to be looked at. So, examine yourself. Ask the right questions, and then put up healthy, clear boundaries. Make things explicit in your relationships. If there's not misunderstanding. 
And when, if ever, you come to a point where the relationship is enabling and solidifying another person in harmful attitudes and behaviors, if you've lost all hope of this ever becoming a, right, uh, a rightly related relationship, if, it, if it's harming you and harming them and harming others who are affected by it, um, there prayerfully consider, in community with others, the possibility that God would say, this is a corpse that needs to be buried. And even that, you bury them in love. Out of context, that would sound pretty strange, I know. Bury the person in love. But sometimes that's what has to be done. All right. So now I want to end this way. Uh, would you stand? I want you to, to regain that, uh, that image of that person in your mind, that person you've been thinking about all this sermon, because you're going to apply all of this to that relationship. And I'd like to just close with this prayer. Uh, it's a reiteration of the first prayer. Uh, but uh, if this is on your heart, if you're a kingdom person and you're willing to commit to this, then pray this prayer with me simultaneously and out loud. Jesus, I surrender my will over to you. And I again commit to relating to this person the way you want me to. I ask you to give me the wisdom to know how to apply what I've learned to this relationship. And by the power of the Spirit, I ask that you enable me to live it out. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Go out and be right related.